Hey y'all, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today we're talking to Katie Crafts, and we're going to discover with her again how she found her love of ice, ice sheets, the Antarctic and Arctic regions through guiding trips in those areas for for years, through cruises and, and, and exploring those areas, and then how she ended up kite skiing across Greenland as a way to close that chapter of her life and start a new one. So we find a lot on this show, and, and, and I see it all the time in my personal life and just with friends and, and obviously through the guests here, that adventures are such an amazing way to punctuate a chapter of your life, whether that is opening a chapter, the peak of a chapter, or closing a chapter. As you'll hear many folks go on adventures because something happened or something's getting ready to happen. And it's just a great reason. So if you find yourself getting ready to transition into something different in life, I would encourage you, plan an adventure to help bring conclusion or to help bring newness to that phase of your life. I use that method, and I think adventure is just such a great way to make it really stand out in your mind. We talk about a lot about that, too, just doing things differently. Adventures, in a lot of ways, just these anchoring points in your life where memories can attach to. The adventure itself is an anchor, and memories are are connected to it. For instance, you know, I I can remember, I, I forget the countless nights that I sleep in my own bed. I can't remember one from the other necessarily, but I remember that one night Uh, Last year, I slept on my back porch or the night that I just put up a hammock and stayed right there, right on the side of my yard or or just the things that are different. And adventure provides that for us. I'm kind of getting in the weeds here. But anyway, Katie's story, we're kind of diving into that uh, that theme a little bit. So if you want to learn more about Katie, she does have a career acceleration program that she runs, and that's what she does. You can find out more about that at the K capproach.com and we're talking we're going to talk about a little bit of that too but some links to follow her in the show notes and thank you so much for listening and let's go ahead and dive into her, this amazing story about crossing greenland All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports podcast. You heard a little bit of Katie's story in the intro, but we're going to dive in now. I'm coming at this totally fresh Super excited to talk, but Katie Crafts, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mason, for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, and before we recorded, you were asking me where I'm coming from, which, you know, most people don't ask, actually. But where are you coming from? Where's home for you? Well, home for me is usually in Oregon in a cool little mountain town that I won't say on a national podcast. (laughs) But I live in the mountains along a river, and I love home there. At the moment, though, I have a remote job, and so I'm working remotely from Santa Cruz, California. I'm looking right out at the Pacific Ocean, and it's a really awesome kind of jam term, I call it, a reset in the middle of winter. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's probably nice to get out into that in the middle of the winter. I mean... Have you, have you spent much time in Santa Cruz before? That's a really cool town. Yeah, I love it here. I went to college here, so it's oh. where I learned how to surf and how to not study, but how to pass the degree. <laughs> and I have some roots. It's fun to come back. It feels like one of my many homes around the planet. Oh, I'm sure. In college, you know, that's when you build a lot of, you know, your network and friends and just lifelong, you know, relationships and, and being able to come back every once in a while and do that. It's got to be really cool. Yeah, totally. 
So did you grow up in the Pacific Northwest? Did you say that? Or is that just home now? I did grow up there more or less. My family windsurfed and still does. And so that's what took us to Oregon in the first place. And that's kind of been where my roots were formed. It's been my base camp for many years as I was a roamer around the planet. I would always come back to my little small town. And these days I happily call it home. I enjoy getting out and I love coming back there. It's a good place. I call it my base camp and it's a nice place to come back to. Mm. You know, there's that saying with travel, like uh, coming back is not the same as never leaving. Totally. Do you find yourself like viewing home differently every time you come back, like new things to, to see in different ways or it like, okay, I get to come back and it's the place that, that never changes. I don't know. Maybe it does change. It changes for better and for worse <laughs> as a lot has, I think. But yeah, hopefully when I come home, I love coming home with another perspective or another lens to see my home. There was a time in my life and the story we'll talk about today was kind of the capstone of that era. But there was a time when I was spending a lot of my life in the polar regions in Antarctica and Greenland and I was studying those polar ecosystems and I knew a lot about icy things, the icy part of the planet, the icy animals, the icy ecosystems, what that world looked like. And during that time, I realized that it was curious to me that I knew more about the bottom and top of the planet than I did my own home. I knew more about the ecology in Antarctica than I did about the Pacific Northwest forest. And that was so bizarre. It was a funny moment of I want to go home and I want to learn more about my home and spend time, you know, within 30 minutes of my home. I can walk out my back door and go on trails. And I just really started to immerse myself in my home a lot more since I made that conscious decision to spend more time there. So, yeah, I love coming home and I love coming home with new learnings and I love discovering my home. There's always a lot more to discover. Now, tell me this might be a common misconception, but is knowing the ecology of the polar regions maybe a little less daunting than learning all the ecology <laughs> yeah. in the Pacific Northwest as far as just the vastness of it? Or is that a misconception? I think that's a fair, accurate okay. conception. There's, uh, there's no trees. It's too into so. the spectrums there and my, and from, what I, from what I know about yeah. the two places. It's a marine, both are marine ecosystems. So I learned a lot more about oceans and that ecosystem and climate and atmosphere and ocean interactions and things like that. But trees and forests, those elude me. They involve biology and chemistry. And I mean, oceans and atmosphere do too. I can hear my, feel my colleagues cringe when I say that. But trees are just a new level of complexity that my brain can't fully wrap its head around. So Yes, I went the easy way with ecology and went to the polls. <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's really cool. I, I think we just celebrated Arbor Day in our town just nice. this week or last. So we've been thinking and talking about trees a lot. And I think we actually celebrated it at a different time of year than the rest of the country because usually summer is so hot here. No one wants to, you know, spend too much time outside. Wintertime here is great, but... That's really interesting. So, well, tell me about uh, maybe the, the your adventure foundation. Like, what kind of home did you grow up in? Were you encouraged to, you know, be adventurous, be outside, think this way? Because I, I know you did spend a lot of time in the, in the polar regions, like you said, but um, what were some of the stepping stones leading up to that? You usually don't just jump right in, but honestly, knowing the people on this show, yeah, a lot of times you do just jump right in. 
Uh, yeah, I bet you meet that side of the spectrum of humanity, and I'm on that side of the spectrum of humanity. <laughs> I actually, I was a not athletic kid with a speech impediment as until I was 18, and then even into college. So I didn't do very much outdoor sports. I was more into drama. I was into piano and creative outlets. I remember one time catching a ball in PE class and it was like the highlight of my athletic career in PE. <laughs> and I remember it so vividly. That's how rare it was. And then I went to college down here in Santa Cruz and I was really inspired by the nature and the place I was surrounded by. So I started to play ultimate frisbee, which is a very athletic and also oh, very yeah. fun sport. <laughs> and that was really the gateway into athleticism for me. And that's when I started to be able to use my body more to access places that I wanted to see. And I was led by mostly just curiosity and the sense of exploration for me. And it was exploration for me because people have been everywhere on the planet at this point. So it wasn't like I was exploring anything new, but for me, I was expanding my world and I was exploring new things, even if it was just a new part of the forest or a new longer bike ride with a new perspective on the coastline here, something like that. I just wanted to see things new and have that novelty of exploration. So I started to get out more a lot in college. And then it just grew over time. I got more athletic. I made a commitment to myself in college out of the blue to become a sponsored windsurfer. And so I trained for it by running a marathon down here, the Big Sur Marathon, which is a hard one. And it's the first and last one I've ever done. And it was beautiful. And I got really fit and then went home and got sponsored and traveled and competed and became really physically empowered through those years. I was traveling a bit for windsurfing and it really just started through these different activities. My exploration continued to expand and what was once exploration on a scale of miles became exploration on a scale of states and then countries and then ecosystems. When did the polar regions start coming more and more into focus and into view and become more of, of that I don't know if you would say like the focus of your life or more of planning around that, doing those things. When did that come into more of the focus? There was a seed planting moment actually in college here in Santa Cruz when I was at the library and I stumbled upon in my many successful hours of procrastination there, I stumbled upon a book about Sir Ernest Shackleton's sunken ship and how it impacted the ocean ecosystem at the bottom of the ocean where it had sank. And this is before it was rediscovered, which was recent. Yeah, honestly, it was so long ago, I can't remember what I was actually reading about, but they must have been speculating about his ship and talking about other ships. I'm not exactly sure, but there was this moment of, oh yeah, Antarctica is a place on the planet and people go there and Shackleton did. So I wonder if I can. And it was again, that exploration momentum of like, huh, I wonder where the line is of where I can and can't go. I think I can go there. So that was kind of the bug in my head. And then later, when I actually first went there, I actually went down as a guest on a ship for my first experience. I was 29, turning 30. I had been working in tech for several years. I had a solid saving, savings account um, for one of the only times in my uh, 
curvy, squiggly career life and decided to treat myself to a 30th birthday gift of going to Antarctica as a guest. And I went down and was inspired by the area. You can't help but not be in so otherworldly and such a different way to see the planet. And I had graduated with a degree in earth sciences. So it helped me really understand or put together different pieces of how the planet worked. And I was also inspired by the people I met on the ship who were working there and who had committed their entire lives to that kind of work. They were smart, they were savvy, they were explorers of their own ways. Um, And it was just such a different way of living than what I ever knew could exist. You know, we're given these options of, do you want to be a firefighter or a school teacher, work in tech, whatever that means, or, you know, do all these things. And nobody ever says, do you want to be a polar expedition guide in Antarctica and Greenland? And once I saw that that route existed, I was very intrigued by it. And that's what I ended up doing for a five-year sabbatical in my career. Sabbatical, it was a different chapter of my career, but I immersed myself in that fully for five years. I wonder how many polar explorers got their inspiration in, in, a, in a surf town. <laughs> so in that way, I think it's pretty unique. For folks that are like, well, how do you do that? How do, how do you, because there's a lot of people that listen to this show that either want to take some sort of sabbatical, like you're mentioning, or change careers or or get, you know, pr- pursue these things that they discover while they're pursuing adventure. Like you said, you know, you, you think there's like five options when you start out in life. And as you learn more and, and see new things and do new things, you realize just how granular it can get. What were some of the things that you did to get into this in the sense of like the opportunities you took and and, uh, what advice would you have for somebody kind of at the same crossroads now? Well, I was working as a recruiter before I went into the polar world and I leveraged the knowledge of recruitment to get myself into that world. I did a really intentional job search. (laughs) It's a perfect skill to have. It really is. I know recruitment is another one of those fields that nobody tries to get into, but when you get into it, you can sure learn a lot that is useful knowledge. But I did a really strategic and intentional job search. I targeted all the companies that exist and there. I actually found the membership company because I didn't know that much about this world yet. I found the membership company membership organization that all ships are a member of. And so through that organization, I could see all the names of all the different ships that run down there. And then on LinkedIn, I could search for different people who work on those ships. And then using my recruitment skills, I could guess their email addresses and do cold outreach to them. And that way I wasn't somebody with tech skills applying to well, I was somebody with tech skills applying to an outdoor field and I didn't have any skills yet. But by making it more personal, I got just enough responses to basically get my foot in the door. And I started as a bartender, which did not require any technical skill set. It just required gumption and grittiness. And from there, I wiggled my way up into guiding and lecturing and was able to do everything that I set out to do. You know, what a roundabout way of getting where you want to go, but getting like peripherally there and Barton and what's funny is Barton, you probably made more money Barton than just about any other thing you could do in the polar world. I don't know. You tell me my, my wife was a bartender when we first got together and I was just blown away by 
how much you can make doing that. So jumping out of that into anything else could be, it's it's hard because then it's like a pay cut. Bartending is a great skill to have. I'll just say that. I think you can get your foot in the door anywhere on the planet if you know how to serve a cocktail. And if you don't, which I didn't, you can make beer your happy hour specialty and just call it good and really embrace being a mediocre bartender. (laughs) She's a teacher now, and she says that's the bartending was is one of the best places she learned the skills that helps her teach now being personable communication skills multitasking all that it's just like it's an amazing skill to have yeah. skill set to have so I, I imagine you were you're already bringing like a new angle to this world through tech and now through the skills that are coming with bartending probably just made you stand out even more. So I know we're asking a lot about like career path. This isn't like a career advice podcast, but it is interesting how everyone that's on the show has a very interesting career path or how they navigate opportunities and open up their life either for time frames or for the, the budget to do some of these adventures. And so it's always interesting to dive into that. So from there, what did you start doing in this, you know, either this field of research or what were you doing in the polar regions to help some of the efforts that were going on there. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I actually was on the tourism side of the industry. There's a lot of different ways you can work in the polar regions. You can be a scientist, which means you have to be a scientist, or you can support scientists, which means you have to have a technical knowledge, Um, or you can work in tourism. And in tourism, people drink cocktails, so they need bartenders. People are passengers on boats, so they need boat drivers. People go down there to explore in their own ways and to learn. What I worked toward and became was basically a guide in the Arctic. So I would run wilderness trips in Greenland for 10 days. We would go from Iceland to Greenland and stay at a backcountry wilderness safari style Greenland tent and go on hikes and explore the fjords over there. I also worked in the Canadian Arctic running polar bear trips where I educated people over six or seven day trips on polar bears. And we spent time on the West coast of Hudson Bay, which is where the polar bears gather before the sea ice freezes on Hudson Bay. Um, And then in our winters, which is the Antarctic summer, I would go down and eventually landed on the National Geographic ships and was a lecturer on climate, mostly focusing on ice processes and the role they play in climate systems. And I was driving Zodiacs, doing little cruises around icebergs and whale watching, talking about penguin colonies. And at that point, I had really delved into the mountain skill set arena to some degree. But I was one of the more mountain savvy people on the team. And so I was often leading hikes alongside glaciers or up to the high points and along the coastline of Antarctica. What was the appetite for adventure for a lot of the guests on these cruises and trips? Was it, did you find it satisfying what they wanted to do compared to what you wanted to do? Or did it, did it leave, you know, you feeling like you had to, you wanted to go further in? That's a good question. (laughs) It varied. I think their appetite was 
Curiosity. I think a lot of people went down with the curiosity. Unfortunately, the side of it that I didn't like was I saw a lot of people, quote unquote, bagging peaks or bagging continents. You know, that was a lot of people's seventh continent. And they would go down to check that box and take the pictures for Instagram. And that was a real turnoff for me of why we would, what would motivate people to explore. There was a lot of that. There was also a lot of curiosity and intrigue and people wanted to be educated. And that was the side that I loved. I really enjoyed breaking down the polar world, piecing together the planet for them, helping them really understand what climate is versus weather, what the ice they're holding in their hand means and was once for the planet, where it came from, the role it plays in regulating the planet's climate and things like that. So that's where I really enjoyed that aspect of my job. In terms of physical adventure, you know, these are trips with two guides and remote parts of the planet. We could only, we did, these were not physically straining activities for me and my co-guides. These were, sometimes these were people who'd never hiked before. So we would get them outside and moving. Sometimes these were avid hikers who were scared to go somewhere new, like East Coast of Greenland. It really varied. We met a lot of different types of people with different motivations and that worked. Yeah, talk about an epic first hike, the Arctic yeah. or Antarctica, you know, just, oh, that's the, my first place I ever went for a hike. Going to be hard to beat. Going to be hard to beat that when you go back home. In your time there, what are, did you, you know, I know that the polar regions are a lot of times one of the most, I don't know, visible indicators of climate change. Things are changing there quicker than they're changing in a lot of other places. Did you notice any of that, or did were people telling stories about stuff? One example is I, you know, you, glaciers often have like markers on the mountains where like this is where it was in 1912, this is where it was in 1936, and there's photography to prove it. What kind of changes to the climate did you notice down there or up there, depending on which trips you were on? So the scale of climate and what separates the time scale that separates climate from weather is 15 years. So patterns that happen less than 15 years is weather patterns that happen over 15 years is climate. I was only there for five years. So technically, according to science, I did not witness climate change. That said, you know, I was interacting with glaciers every year and did see them changing. I ha uh, The part of the planet that really impacted my relationship with the changing climate was in Greenland because in Greenland, people live there and they still live off the land. They still live using the resources from a mile or two within their home. And on Greenland, there's not much for vegetation, although there are small berries and willows and different things that people can use to amplify their diets, but most of their diet comes from the sea. So they eat, they still eat seals, they eat polar bears, which are monitored under a quota. And people are really follow that quota to a T and respect the wildlife that they're taking from so that they can feed themselves. This is how people have lived for thousands of years on the planet and they're still doing it in these parts of the world. So when I was able to interact with the people in East Greenland who are still living the subsistence-based lifestyle, that's where I really saw how impactful small changes that you and I don't have to think about back at home are for people in communities like that. For example, 
the way of travel in Greenland is over the sea ice because there's a lot of coastal islands. People only live around the coastline. Nobody lives in the side of Greenland. It's an ice sheet. So people live around the coastline and the coastline is islands. The way people travel from island to island is either by boat when there's water or by dog sled when there's sea ice. And as the climate changes, it really impacts the different ocean currents and where the sea ice freezes and forms. When the sea ice is solid, it creates a network of frozen highways connecting the different coastal islands. And that's how people travel. That's how people travel to visit other family members. That's how people travel to go hunting and feed themselves in their villages. When the sea ice is not frozen, people can travel by boat. When the sea ice breaks up earlier than normal, it's inconsistent. It's kind of like if the main road arteries in the U.S. were constantly opening and closing and opening and closing, and you never know if you'll be able to get to work or not that day. It's that kind of volatility in their environment that truly is impacting their ability to feed themselves. Beyond that, it impacts so many ways of how they live. Like seal populations are moving based on where different fish are these days, and the fish are moving based on where the currents are. So everything is moving and where they used to know that, for example, the seal grocery store was, quote unquote, they could go to this one spot, there would be seals there, they would be huntable. Now those are erratic. And it would be like if, you know, Safeway or whatever grocery store we go to is always opening and closing and opening and closing, and we never know where we would get our food from next. That these are the struggles that people who live in Greenland are dealing with on a day-to-day and season-to-season basis. And it was really exposing for me to see that so clearly firsthand. Yeah, you say five years is too short, but you, you you can talk to people who've been there a lot longer and who can give you anecdotes and, and tell you stories about what used to be. And so I imagine it was very eye-opening to a lot of people that visited as well. Yeah. I'm not sure how often y'all wanted to ta- talk about those topics to, to folks that are guests, but it's a perfect opportunity to cement those ideas and those realities of what's happening. It is. And we talked about it a lot. I made that my my purpose in those trips was to make sure people understood because it's hard for us in our Western life to really understand a lot of these impacts of climate change. We are still really protected from them in many ways. And so I made sure that people could really see that this is a part of the world that's more exposed to those impacts than we are and can see and understand that better. Yeah. And I think people appreciated hearing that. I received good feedback that people wanted to know, wanted to know. And to this day, many years after those trips, I still get articles sent to me by some of my more curious guests and people are still engaged with it. I think it shifted their perspective a lot. I like to think it shifted their perspective a lot. And I know for some people it did and for others it didn't. You mentioned this whole lifestyle was, was if you don't mind me going back a little bit on your timeline, this was not who you were before setting out on this, this adventure uh, in Antarctica and, and going on this kind of new lifestyle, redesigning your entire life. What led to the decision to even want to do these things and to redesign who you were in a lot of ways uh, back in 2014? What was what was life like before and what ultimately led you to do this? And what were some of those things that helped you do that? Because the folks that we hear from that listen to this show, 
it's like they're getting ready for that change, but they're building up inspiration, kind of banking that away for when it's, when it's time. Does that make sense? It does. And I get that. I had that fire inside of me and I think we all get that fire inside of us at different points in our lives. My midlife crisis came at age 29. I'm sure I'll have another couple few ahead of yeah, me. Hopefully that life. wasn't totally, completely <laughs> midway. Hopefully that was a little early. Yeah, totally. <laughs> hopefully it was like closer like to, to quarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 30%. Living to 120. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 120. <laughs> yeah. But I think I, there just came a point when I couldn't ignore it anymore. And and I am someone who believes it will work out. I'm a jump and the net will appear kind of person. And I always have been. And it's led to spectacular failures and wonderful successes and trials by fire and everything in between. And for me, it was pretty easy to really turn my life upside down because I had a, that fire and I couldn't keep it down. I really needed to see who else I could be. I needed to see what else I could do. I needed to see what else existed out there. And I've talked with a lot of people who've thrown their lives upside down in the many years since then. And it's it's hard. It's It can be really lonely. It can be really isolating. I think that, you know, my friends and family it looked very romantic from the outside and the reality was really hard. Some people were really supportive of the vision. Other people were not. The reality was that I was coming and going from life at home so much. And so I was a hard friend to maintain. I lost some friendships along those years. Um, There were a lot of ups and downs throughout all of that. And that's part of why a few years ago, I made the decision to stop doing that kind of life and come back to home. And home was a big question for me throughout those years. Which home is real? Which world is real? Back at home in Oregon, I had my friends, my family. I had stability, but I wasn't as empowered or as um, vivacious or inspired by my surroundings as I was when I was in these other parts of the world. And then I would go to Antarctica and I would work with amazing people. And in that kind of environment, we're all thrown onto a ship together and have to rely on each other. So you form really quick bonds closely. And I'm, I was so in awe of my coworkers. And also we were short-term acquaintances. I formed some relationships and friendships that I still maintain, but a lot of that was getting to know people on 10 to 30 day chunks of time. And you don't get that long-term friendship that you do at home. So throughout those years, which world is my world? Which reality is my reality? Am I looking for, you know, I was dating throughout that time. Was I looking for someone back at home who could give me stability or someone in Antarctica who could give me novelty? It just seemed like there was two different realities I was living in. and that ultimately led to my decision to come back home and remake my home. I forget what the question is, but for some reason that seemed... I did too. No, it was, it was, you know, what, what, what led to this change in 2014 that, that made you want to, as you say, or as I read, become the inner wonder woman that you wanted to be. And I just think that that's a common theme we hear a lot on the show is, and not everyone ever, you know, there's a lot, plenty of people that never make that jump, of course, but you did. And you have seen 
both sides of this. And I love that you mentioned that it hasn't been flawless and that there are things you do lose. And that's the thing a lot of people don't realize is they're waiting for, well, I can't leave for my, you know, whatever this, hike the Appalachian Trail. That's a common one. I can't do that because I'm not quite ready with with finances or my family set up or I don't want to lose relationships. Well, there is something you end up losing when you do take on adventures. And it just is a matter of, are you okay with that possibility or that mm-hmm. potentially happening? And there will, and that's any time, that any point of your life, you know, I did that early on in college. And guess what I missed out on? Internships and preparing for what life was after mm-hmm. school. And so I missed out on those 20s of building my career. I'm starting that a lot later than a lot of people. And sometimes that does, you know, aggravate me. But when I look back, And like, no, I'm so glad I did it the way I did because it's opened up all these doors. It's probably exactly why I'm I'm talking to you right now. But the point is there is going to be something lost when there's something gained. But, you know, it's you got to weigh that equation for yourself. And it sounds like you are very happy with what you did. Well, well, I know we haven't even jumped into it yet, but I want to hear. When you were getting ready to go home, where and when did this idea of crossing Greenland come into play? How, what what did you do and what was that like? It sounds like it was a way to maybe close this chapter with a bang. The idea had always kind of been in the back of my mind, again, that inner fire, because I knew that people across Greenland and I didn't know why they could and I couldn't. Or I wondered, am I someone who can do that? And I just needed to see if I was someone who could do that. I had that insatiable curiosity, which can be very dangerous, but also pretty fun if you chase it with a little bit of risk literacy thrown in along the way. (laughs) But in a couple of years before I did the crossing, I did a Knowles Mountain Instructor course in Alaska. And there I met Celine, who became my expedition partner for Greenland. And Celine and I just hit it off. We laughed a lot on the hardest days. We enjoyed each other's company. And she was a modern Renaissance Arctic woman. She was um, is amazing in every way. She and her husband live in Nunavut in the Canadian Arctic at about the same latitude that Greenland is. And her skill set was amazing. So we connected and mentioned it to each other in a lunch line. I still remember we were getting lunch at the Knowles campus in Palmer. And I realized where she was from and I said, oh, I've always thought about crossing Greenland. And as soon as I said it, I was like, have I always thought about that? Am I suddenly going to be crossing Greenland with this lady? (laughs) And sure enough, my big mouth got me into a big experience, but we became friends, had that great experience. And a couple of years later, I mentioned it to her again and said, I kind of really want to do that. And we spent two years planning during those two years We started by meeting up um, in Montana, actually, because she was down in the lower 48 and we wanted to make a plan. So the first things that we did was do a risk analysis of what's most likely to go wrong, what's the um, probability and consequence of these different hazards, and what do we need as a team and as individuals in order to be prepared for this. So that kind of guided our training and our gear acquisition and then spent two years training and getting gear. And we we were so lucky with the sponsorships. We weren't lucky. We were, our timing was lucky. We are 
women doing novel things at a time when women have done novel things before us. And we were able to build on the shoulders of those women who came before us to get sponsorships. And we were well supported by all sorts of brands from Feathered Friends to Patagonia Provisions, big and small. And they were incredibly supportive and generous and really helped us make this a realistic experience. And then, then we did it. We, we flew to Greenland via Iceland. One of our sponsors was Gruyere Cheese. Celine was a Swiss Canadian, so she got sponsorship for us from the best Gruyere Cheese company in Sweden. Sweden? Switzerland? Oh man, foot and mouth moment. Yeah, um, yeah. One of them. <laughs> one of them. And she, we had to get the cheese shipped to us on the coast of Greenland. So we spent three days and two nights in one small community just to find the cheese. So we built that into our travel time. <laughs> and basically, we decided to go east to west because that was a common, quote unquote, common route, the most common route and a route that we figured we would be able to do. Um, we spent during our training time, we both learned how to kite ski. I had a windsurfing background, so I thought kiting on skis would be easy. Turns out there's more to it than I thought, but you only have to be so good to kite ski across Greenland to get pulled in one direction with a bunch of sleds for a couple hundred miles. So it's not like you have to be boosting anything or whatever. You have to have more wilderness and cold weather survival skills. So we got just good enough at kite skiing to be able to kite ski across Greenland. <laughs> and we 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 did it. It was a fun experience and it was a great capsta- capstone to that time. It was for me the perfect end chapter to a great era of my life. And for Celine, it was a perfect start for some really big experiences. She's since gone on to guide in Antarctica and is guiding skiing trips to the South Pole perhaps Vincent. She's been the first woman to run 100 kilometers through the National Forest on Baffin Island, where she lives. She's gone on to do some really incredible things. And for both of us, we shared this experience, but it became really different chapters of our lives. That is such an, you make it sound so, so simple and easy. I I have a feeling that it wasn't. For someone like me, it would have been very difficult to pull this off. It was uh, difficult for me too. Okay. <laughs> I think it was a one and done for me. But and how long did you say it it, it it took? The crossing itself took us 11 days. The experience itself took us nearly a month because we had a 12-day weather delay in East Coast Greenland because we had to get from those coastal islands out onto the main ice sheet. And to do that, we had to go by helicopter and a helicopter landing on ice has to be able to see where the land ends and the sky begins. So you need to have some opening in the clouds and there just wasn't any opening in the clouds. And then the helicopter was broken and then some heli skiers were there hoarding the helicopter. And it was just all these, you know, things we didn't plan for, but we spent 12 days playing chess and playing cards and wow, making plans B, C, D, and E. And we're happy that we could live out plan A. Well, tell me this. I I know we haven't, you know, a lot of times on this show, the adventure is what takes up most of the conversation, but, you know, it's not always the case. And for us, I I, I think your story and how you got to these places is actually pretty stinking fascinating. But I do want to know, 
with crossing Greenland as compared to taking folks on experiences in a lot of these places, was there anything you learned about the place that you had gotten to know so well that you hadn't known before through the crossing, that is? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Oh, yeah. And if I had a list of everything I learned in this experience, it would be a scroll and we'd need many hours for that. But to answer your direct question of was there anything I learned about the place I was in from this experience? Absolutely. It was for me, I was inside Greenland or in the middle of Greenland. The coastline is where life exists. The interior is where life does not exist. And for a week, we saw nothing except for a bird who seemed to be quite lost and happy to have stumbled upon us. <laughs> there sometimes is a polar bear that is hungry and kind of lost that goes into the interior of Greenland. There's sometimes a bird that is hungry and kind of lost in the interior of Greenland. But it's really an environment not suitable to life as we know it. And also, it's a protector of our planet's history because that's where we get the ice cores that tell us so much information about what was happening around the planet for thousands of years in our history. So I'm not sure how to sum up the learning from it, but it was just, it gave me a really precious and intimate perspective toward a part of the planet that a lot of people don't get to experience, and rightly so. And a lot of animals and species don't get to experience. And I felt incredibly cherished. Like, what a special, precious part of the world to be able to spend some time with. And I love that it came at, like you said, a a way to close out this chapter for you, for you, for others. Mm -hmm. It was a way to open a new chapter. But, you know, now that you've, you know, been back home, you say that chapter's closed. How how do you balance, you know, ha- having this amazing part of your life that you did with things that you want to do now and knowing just what long-term and big adventures can feel like balancing that with being back home? Like what, what, what have been some of the things you've been able to do to, I don't know, deal with that? I'm sure you've had hard days where it's like, what well, what am I thinking? I don't know. I'm just, I'm, maybe I'm asking because personally, that's how I feel sometimes. It's like, balancing the two worlds that you know you can exist in pretty well. Yeah, I think you think about this. I think about this. I think a lot of people who have lived big lives are burdened with this question and this self-duty. Yeah, it does feel tricky and I have not become the master of that craft by any means in my own life. It's been a struggle. I've come to learn a lot more about myself in the years since, and I am someone who needs those big experiences. And I thought they were wants, and I thought they were things that I could, would be okay with saying bye to if I had a nice garden or, you know, could live a, I hate to use words smaller, but, you know, more packaged, smaller in exploration kind of life. And I'm just not. And I've come to learn that. I have different cadences. I have things I need on a daily, weekly, monthly, and annual basis. And on a daily basis, I need to get outside every day. On a weekly basis, I need to go for a hike or something where I can connect with nature. 
on a seasonal basis, I have my different seasons and things I love to do every season, like Alpine season and the late summer. I have got to get up into the Alpine for several nights and spend some time in a tent above the tree line. And on a yearly basis, I need to go somewhere and have it be a wild experience. And I like to live in a wild and raw and free kind of way. I don't like to be confined to you know, norms of society or norms of work that has led to a lot of squiggliness in my career itself. But I need to go someplace where I get that wild feeling back in me, whether it's a big landscape like Alaska, those mountains that inspire so much, or or Iceland where I can just walk and walk and walk for days and go explore something new every day. But I have to I, the, that's kind of the way I've been able to make it work is I have these cadences of activities. And if I miss a season or if I miss a big trip a year, or if I miss a hike on a weekly basis, I really feel it. And it brings me down and I struggle with a lot. Of, I go back and revisit all of my life decisions that have led me here and wonder if I'm doing the right thing. But if I stick to that cadence more or less, it really fuels me and I can live the best of both of those worlds in a way that works for me now. That's that's a beautiful way to put it. That can help you deal with those times that you feel are dull. Or it's like, hey, as long as I'm m- meeting those weekly goals that I know I need to maintain and knowing those yearly things are once a year. And so you might be on the other half of that year, six months away from the next one, uh, where you can lose vi- sight of that and it can feel really overwhelming or depressing or whatever it is. And just just having, I really like that cadence you're talking about. I used a phrase this past year for an opportunity. I'd never thought of it or used it before. And I know it's not novel, but it's kind of along those lines. It's like, this is like a once a decade trip. I'm not going to say it's once in a lifetime. That seems dramatic, uh, but I'm not going to say it's going to happen every year because it was kind of a big trip. And it's like, this is like a once a decade kind of opportunity. I got to take it. And it's like, yeah, I, I could see having, you know, four or five of those or six of those like that more in my life. But that's another way. Maybe there's, maybe for someone listening, it's a five-year thing. Every five years, I want to do a really big thing. Uh, For me, it's been, and I've talked about it a lot in the show, it's been every two months, I do a weekend long, some sort of trip, backpacking, (laughs) paddleboarding. It's got to be one to two nights out. But every eight weeks, there's something, eight to 10 is really, it gets extended a little bit, but it's five to six a year, but it's around, you know, within a couple hours of home with some friends. And that has like, as soon as it's over, okay, just another eight weeks till the next one. That's the cadence that works for me. And we've had plenty of folks on the show that it's once a year, they they plan a really big trip with a group of friends that's somewhere, a destination like you were talking about. Uh, with a big landscape, big, inspiring, big, inspiring land. And that's, I love that. So setting that up for yourself is going to be really important to maintain through some of these times of life where it's, it's just not always giant, massive things all the time for most people. Most people we have on this show, we are talking about a segment of their life that happened a lot of times many years ago, or uh, they're right in the middle of, but very few people keep that forever. It's not a balanced life. 
It's not. And balance looks different for all sorts of people. And I also, I mean, shout out to therapists. I will say I've been seeing a therapist and it's been incredibly helpful to get more knowledge around myself. And I recommend that for everybody who's on the fence. And if you're struggling, figuring out what, what makes you happy, that can really. I was in therapy this morning, so I can attest to it too. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Very helpful. Well, cool. Well, um, Gosh, well, you you know, I I, I don't want to put pressure on this, but what is next for you? What what are some of those upcoming things you're looking forward to, whether they're adventures or seasons? Do you know? Uh, If not, you know, no worries. If you asked me that question, I, I don't know if I'd have an answer right now. Yeah, well, being here for my Jan term in Santa Cruz is kind of a fun place to recharge and get ready for what this year will hold. I've recently launched a business, actually, that some of your listeners might be interested in. My main job, I've gone back to recruitment and I'm back in tech. And so I work on behalf of companies to find them employees, but I've also rolled out a job seeker program. It's a six session, it's a six session customized program for people who are looking for new work and want to be intentional about it and use some of these tools and tips and strategies that I've learned through my recruitment career. And I'm doing that for tech. That's where I get my money. But I'm also doing that for outdoor professionals because that's where my passion is. And that's an industry that's really supported me. And I want to support the people who are probably going through the same struggles that I've gone through. So I have a product specifically geared toward outdoor professionals. That's a six-week one-on-one career acceleration strategy program. And I'm working on rolling that out right now. I hope it takes off wildly. And I'm excited to help a lot of people get through some of the struggles that I've got myself through. As far as big year experiences, I don't have any penned in, but I have a bunch penciled in and they include things like going back to Iceland and going for a long walk there, maybe going to see Elton John's final performance in Stockholm. Last one of his life. What a moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah, totally. What a great moment to witness. Absolutely. And then just some stuff in the States, like volcano season in the springtime. I'm excited for that. Alpine season in late summer, maybe going to the desert a bit in the spring. Got a lot, got a lot of irons in the fire. We'll see which ones come hey, to fruition. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I tell you what, what what can if you can share anything about your new endeavor, the career courses, if you if you if there's anything you can share now, great. If not, if in the, by the time this episode comes out, you can send it to me. We'd love to plug that. That would be awesome. Yeah, I have info on my website, which is thekcapproach.com. KC, like my initials, the kcapproach.com. Basically, the gist of it is we'll set up a, a free console. I'll spend half an hour getting to know more about you and your career and what kind of struggles you're having and figure out where we should put the impetus of our or the bulk of our work. It'll start typically with a self-inventory of what really gets you fired up and how to make sure you know how to find that. And then some very practical strategy around how do I break these doors open? How do I find these people? How do I reach out to them? How do I do cold outreach? How do I do persistent cold outreach? Interview tips and tricks. Again, I've been a recruiter for a decade in my life. And so I've spent a lot of time inside of the heads or working 
one-on-one with these decision makers of people who actually do the hiring. So I know what kind of questions they ask and how they gauge responses and help people through the interview process. And then of course, my favorite negotiations, our time is valuable. And I think as outdoor professionals, especially we tend to prioritize experience over value, but we have knowledge and skill sets and we need to get paid for the value that we bring to our company. So helping people through those negotiations and making sure that they get the best package possible for themselves and really making sure that all of that together, the goal is to make work fuel life. And so make sure that the job you're looking for, the job that you accept and the package you receive is something that will fuel your lifestyle because that's so important to a lot of people and especially to people who are outdoor professionals. Pulling it up right now. I I might be giving you a call. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. I would love that. <laughs> oh wow. Well, well Katie, I, I I really appreciate you being on. And this was uh this was a lot of fun. Didn't know where it was gonna go. I knew we were gonna go to Antarctica at some point or, or Greenland <laughs> too. So happy to see where this conversation took us. This was great. Thank you. That was really fun. Great questions and fun to relive a lot of those great experiences. First of all. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. New year, new credit scores. Chime makes it easier to build credit by using your own money to make on-time payments with a secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card. Use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. To apply, just open a Chime checking account with a qualifying direct deposit. There's no annual fee or credit check required when applying. Get started at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Late payment may negatively impact your credit score. Results may vary.